Amen. You can be seated. Amen. Christ is risen indeed. This is my favorite day of the year. This is the best day of the year. This is the most important day in all of human history. This day means everything to us. This day is everything for us. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, this is the day of all days to rejoice and to celebrate. We say often at our church, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, then nothing matters at all. If Christ is still in that tomb, if his lifeless body is still buried, then nothing matters. We are wasting our time being here. But since Jesus has been raised from the dead, then nothing else matters but that. Nothing else matters but the reality that Jesus Christ has been raised from the dead. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a historical reality, but it's not a historical fact like other historical facts. Whether I do or do not believe, for instance, that Julius Caesar crossed the Rubicon in 49 BC, that doesn't change my life at all. That's a historical fact, but me believing in it or not believing in it changes nothing about my life. Whether I do or do not believe in Jesus Christ being raised from the dead and commit my life to him, that changes everything. So my question is, how does Christ's resurrection change you and me right now, this very second? We've talked before on Easter Sunday about the, the resurrection from the dead for believers in Christ being raised on that last day, 1 Corinthians 15, bringing many sons to glory as we even sang about that Christ is the first fruits of the resurrection. We've talked about the narrative in Matthew 28. We've gone through so many different places in the Bible to speak of why the resurrection is so amazing. But this morning I want to look at you and at me. How does Christ's resurrection change us today. If you have your copy of God's word, turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Romans chapter 6. We are going to be studying the first few verses in Romans 6, but in order to understand the context and the flow of why Paul is saying what he is saying, we need to go back to Romans chapter 5, verse 20. I'll begin reading there and down through chapter 6, verse 14. Paul writes, the law came so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more so that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase? May it never be. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore we have been buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, so too we might walk in newness of life. For if we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we shall also be in the likeness of his resurrection, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him 
in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin because he who has died is free from sin. Now, if we have died with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, having been raised from the dead, is never to die again. Death no longer is master over him. For the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. But the life that he lives, he lives to God. Even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, do not let sin reign in your mortal body so that you obey its lusts. And do not go on presenting the members of your body to sin as instruments of unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those alive from the dead and your members as instruments of righteousness to God. For sin shall not be master over you, because you are not under law, but under grace. Father, we thank you for the reality of the resurrection. We thank you for the theology that Paul takes us so deeply into. It's so easy to say, this historical fact happened... But so what? I believe that it occurred, but how does it change me today? And so, Father, I I pray that you would be pleased in these moments that we have together around your word, staring at your resurrected son, that you'd be pleased to work in the hearts of believers, Christians who love you, to remind them of your amazing grace in their life at this very moment. You have freed them from sin and from death. God, enable these moments to help us to walk as new creatures in newness of life. And Father, for those in this room who maybe know the facts about Jesus being raised from the dead, dying on a cross, being buried, and then being raised three days later, God, I pray that they would see in their own hearts that maybe even though they know the facts They've never truly committed their lives to Christ. They've never loved him. They don't love him. If they're honest with their own heart, they really don't care about Jesus. They believe that certain facts are true, but they do not love Christ. Instead, they love their sin. And sin is still their slave master. God, I pray today would be the day that you would bring about freedom from that slavery, the breaking of chains of the slavery to sin and to death, the bondage that we were all in. I know that there are some in this room that are still in bondage to sin. And God, I pray that as we walk through these verses that you would enable us to see the provision made for us to be freed from sin, freed from death, no fear over death. And I pray that Jesus Christ would be exalted. Jesus, we love you. We gather together in your name because you are our everything. We love you so much. Help us to love you more. Holy Spirit, as we pray every Lord's Day, open our eyes now to behold wonderful things from your precious word. We pray in the name of Jesus, our risen Savior. Amen. The book of Romans is Paul's theological treatise on the gospel. And here we are about a third of the way into the book. Paul has taught about the gospel, about sin and how destructive sin is. And he's taught about what we would call justification, that Jesus 
because of his death, is now able to declare you and me not guilty for all who trust in him. He's talked about something called imputation, which is where all of our sin has been imputed or credited to Jesus, and all of Jesus' righteousness has been imputed or credited to us as believers. He's talked about propitiation. He's talked about the satisfaction that there is a penalty that we must pay because we are all sinners, and that penalty hangs over our heads, and Jesus in his kindness says, I will take that penalty. And he bore that penalty on the cross, was buried, rose from the dead, conquering sin and death, and completely removing that penalty. It's been paid in full. Therefore, we can have assurance of salvation. Paul's taught about all of these things, and he ends by saying, and throughout he's woven it into his message, there is no way that you and I can earn those gracious gifts. There is nothing that you and I do to get saved. Salvation is all of God. It's all of the grace of God. And that's why in chapter 5 he ends by saying, the law has come to teach us that we are sinners, to point us to our need for a Savior. If you've ever felt guilty at one moment in your life, you know you're not perfect. Guilt is a gracious gift of the Lord to remind us we need a Savior. And since Paul has made the argument that there's nothing that we can do to save ourselves, in fact, God's grace is magnified in our sinfulness because since we can't save ourselves, all of our sin, we can't burn it off, we can't do good works to outweigh our bad works, we can't do any of that. There's no such thing as bad karma, good karma, there's none of that. And so Paul says, all of our sin just magnifies the grace of God. And so, after these five chapters, Paul is going to start answering questions that he knows his readers will ask. And the very first question is, if my sin magnifies the grace of God, if my sin puts on display how amazing Jesus is, then should I just keep on sinning so that I keep on making Jesus look amazing? If grace is magnified by how sinful I am, then why don't we just keep on sinning? If justification, if salvation is based on nothing that I do, why don't I just keep on sinning? And I just want to stop there and ask the question, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, is your understanding of grace so profound, such a relief to your conscience, that you, in hearing the gospel and receiving the gospel and believing the gospel, you might walk away feeling that you can actually keep sinning? Do you understand that the gospel is so free to you that you might have the same question that Paul is answering here? Now, Paul is going to answer this question in chapter 6, 7, and 8, and he's going to answer why, as believers in Jesus Christ, we cannot keep sinning. But notice this. He doesn't start in chapter 6 by saying, you know what, let me go back. You misunderstood. That's a good question, but it's a question because I wasn't clear about justification. Let me reiterate, justification actually is uh, something that we do. It's based on something we do. It, it's based on a little effort. I, I need to go back and fix what I said because what I said wasn't as clear as it needed to be, so let me redo that. Let me go back. Let me uh, change some of my arguments. He doesn't do any of that. He says the gospel is free. The gospel is free. Justification is so free that it can seem like we can just keep on sinning. So Paul gets ahead of us here and says, That's, let's not go back and change justification. It is still free. But let's talk about the effects that justification has in your life. So, we can't keep on sinning. And the answer that Paul gives is very clear in verse 2. 
We cannot keep on sinning so that grace may abound. Why? May it never be. Because we have died to sin. And we can't keep living in it if we've died to sin. So what does that mean? What does it mean that we've died to sin? What, what does it mean that we've been raised to newness of life? What does all of this mean? And I want to study these verses under four breathtaking realities. Four headings, four breathtaking realities about how the power of the resurrection enables us to pursue righteousness. That's the goal this morning. How does the resurrection enable us with power to pursue righteous living? Four breathtaking realities from this text. Number one, Christ died a real death on the cross. This is verse three. Do you not know that all all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? He died a real death. Verse five, if we become united with him in the likeness of his death, verse six, knowing this, that all of our old self was crucified with him. He was crucified on a cross. He was killed. Verse 10, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all. He died. Jesus died. He died a public death. Thousands of people would have seen him. He died a verifiable death. He didn't die a death. Somebody took him into a back alley and stoned him to death. No, he died a death that was so public, so verifiable, he died by crucifixion. If anybody would have said, hmm, I don't think Jesus rose from the dead because I don't think he ever died. How did he die? And you say, well, he died by being crucified. People would go, well, yeah, he actually died then. If he was crucified, there's no way he's coming out of that alive. We've been studying in our small groups about the book of Acts. We've seen Paul left for dead after being stoned to death. So they took rocks, they threw them at Paul, and they thought he was dead. You can botch a stoning. You can't botch a crucifixion. It was agonizing. It was lingering. He died a real death, and in that death, he crushed the serpent's head. You remember Genesis 3.15? There is one coming from the lineage of Adam and Eve who will crush the serpent's head. Hugh Martin says it this way, Satan felt the full meaning of despair, the eternal impossibility of ever having a chance again when he heard the conquering cry of Christ, it is finished. Jesus died a real death. He was buried, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. That's why Paul includes the burial of Jesus in the presentation of the gospel. He died according to the scriptures. He was buried and then he rose from the dead. He was buried. He died an actual death. Number two, point number two, Christ was raised from the dead never to die again. Breathtaking reality number one is that Jesus actually died a real death. Breathtaking reality number two He didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. But his resurrection is different than any other resurrection. We can look at his resurrection and think, well, that's just like Lazarus. Lazarus was raised from the dead. John chapter 11, he was raised. But Lazarus was raised from the dead and died a few years later. Jesus was raised from the dead never to die again. This is verse 4. Christ, middle of verse 4, Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father. Verse 5, if we become united in the likeness of his death, certainly we will also be in the likeness of his resurrection. Verse 9, he's been raised from the dead never to die again. Death is no longer master over him. Verse 10, the death that he died, he died to sin once for all, but the life that he now lives, he is alive, praise God. He lives to God. 
Christ is alive. He was seen by over 500 people at one time. He ate food with people. He talked with people. He walked with people. Everybody would go to the tomb to say, is this really real? And there's no body in the tomb. The disciples couldn't have stolen the body. They had the guards that they had to get past. They had the tomb stone that they had to get past, the stone that was rolled in front of the grave. The disciples, if they would have stolen his body, if that's what they wanted to do, they would have either stolen his body and the, the grave clothes together, the, what, the linen wrappings that he was uh, wrapped in. They would have taken his body and the linen wrappings, or they would have just ripped the, the wrappings off and taken his body. But you remember, the disciples go into the tomb and they see that the linen wrappings are there, they're perfectly laid out because Jesus didn't rip them off when he came out of them. He just poofed out of them. We have no reason whatsoever to believe that the resurrect, resurrection didn't happen. It is a historical fact. One of my favorite reasons to believe that the resurrection happened is after Jesus was raised from the dead, his whole family starts worshiping him. Starts worshiping him. Now, you remember, other than Mary... Nobody in Jesus' family believed that Jesus was who he claimed to be. They weren't even there at the foot of the cross when Jesus died because they thought this man's a crazy man. But after the resurrection, his brothers and his sisters worship him. They worship him. My sister thinks that I'm a really nice guy. She does. She's wrong about that, but she thinks I'm a really nice guy. Sometimes she gets me nice gifts. Sometimes she writes me sweet cards. She has very kind gestures and acts of service. My sister has never and will never worship me. And if she does, there's something critically wrong with her, right? Look at your children and look at how your children treat each other, right? Our job as a parent is constantly being a referee, break it up, break it up, break it up, right? And all of a sudden, Jesus' own family says, you are God and you are the Messiah. There's no way that that's possible apart from the resurrection. Number one, Jesus died a real death. Number two, he rose from the dead never to die again. Breathtaking reality number three is where we come in to this account. Number three, believers... Christians have died with Christ. Christians have died with Christ. By faith in Jesus Christ, believing those first two realities, that he died and that he was raised, and committing your life to those realities, God the Father unites us to his Son, puts us in Christ in such a way so that what happens to him happens to us. This is Galatians 2.20 where Paul writes, I have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live. Christ lives in me. I've been crucified with Christ. Jesus was crucified on a cross, Good Friday. Paul was not crucified on that same cross, physically. So I have a few questions according to these verses. If you look at verse 2, how shall we who died to sin still live in it? We died and we've been baptized, verse 3, into his death. We become united, verse 5, into the likeness of his death. So what does this mean? What does it mean that we have died with Christ? So a, a few questions. Let's answer a few questions. Question number one, who, who died? Who has died? Has every single human being died in Christ, with Christ? And Paul makes it very clear, only believers have died with Christ. He makes it clear by talking about baptism. 
Back then, uh, they didn't really have what we have in the modern American church where if you are a Christian, maybe you choose to be baptized, maybe you don't, you don't really know. It's kind of up to you. You pick and your timing at your convenience. Not so back then. In the early church, if you are a believer, you get baptized, that's it. So there's nothing in the early church, there's no concept, no category for a believer who has not been baptized. So by calling those people who have been baptized, Paul is just saying believers. Believers have been dead with Christ. They've been killed with Christ. And just one note to make about baptism, because some people will even use this verse in verse four. Therefore, we have been buried with him through baptism. They will use that verse to say, you are saved by your baptism. You have to be baptized to be saved. And I think if Paul were here, he would say, no. <laughs> the entirety of the book of Romans would say, no. The argument from chapter 1 to 5 would say, it's by grace alone. So this would completely undo his argument to say, oh, and one work, you have to be baptized. So this would make no sense to say, you have to be baptized to be saved. Thief on the cross wasn't baptized, he was saved. If you're baptized, or if you're saved, you will get baptized for sure. It's an act of obedience. But some people get stuck on that word through in verse 4. We've been buried with him through baptism. Baptism buries us into his death. Baptism is the means by which we're saved. Some of your translations might even say buried with him by baptism. It doesn't mean that baptism is the instrument of saving you. It's a symbol of saving you. It's a symbol of what took place in your salvation. And just a, an easy example. If you're married, you have a ring on your finger. And you remember standing at the altar... The, the pastor who was officiating your wedding said something to the effect of, repeat after me, with this ring as a token of my love and affection, I thee wed. Those are the old terms. Those are, that's the old English that we don't really say anymore. I thee wed. But you say something to that effect. By this ring, I am marrying you. And then you'd give it to the person, put it on their finger. Are we really to think by the ring? You, you weren't married until the ring got put on your finger? No. The vows are what unites you together and you say the vows you commit your life to one another you say I do I make a covenant with you and the ring follows that to say this is a symbol of the vow that I made I made a commitment and here's a symbol but we use the language with this ring I thee wed we're not getting married because of the ring being put on a finger same thing here when Paul says we have died with Christ through baptism we've been buried with him through baptism he's not saying that baptism saves you he's saying it's a symbol of what took place in your salvation. So I, just right off the bat, these verses and the point of these verses do not apply to non-believers, to non-Christians. Paul narrows this down to say only believers have died in Christ. Only believers have the resurrection power in them. Only believers have taken the vow, so to speak, using the marriage analogy, and have put on the ring. And so my question to you right now is, have you taken the vow? Have you committed your life to Christ? Are you his? Do you love him? Do you follow him? Do you treasure him? Do you worship him? And if you would say yes to that, next question, have you put on the ring? Have you been baptized? Not for the means of getting saved, not because you need to do that to be saved, but because God graciously has saved you and you want to tell the world. Who has died? Only believers. What Paul is talking about here only applies to Christians. Secondly, how have we died? Second question, how have we died? We've died by becoming united with Christ. This is verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death. Again, we didn't die physically on the cross that Jesus died on. 
We died spiritually. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. How has this occurred that we have become, believers have become united with Christ? How did this occur? 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 30. But by his doing, the Father's doing, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. So how have you become united with Christ? If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you have been united to Christ by the Father's doing. He is the one, using the terminology from John 15, who grafted you in as a vine and the branch. You are a little branch hanging off the vine and God the Father takes you and grafts you into the vine. How do you get united to Christ? You're united by God's doing. The Holy Spirit does the miracle. He unites us so that the death that Christ experienced is counted as my death. My debt is paid. My punishment is experienced. I have been to hell and back. It's over. I don't have any judgment in front of me. Jesus' death counts for me and I am united to his life. Remember 1 Corinthians, or 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21. God the Father made Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin on our behalf so that we would become the righteousness of God in him. We become the righteousness of God, united to Christ, in the same way that Jesus became our sinfulness. Did Jesus ever sin? No. He became sin. He was never sinful but God the Father took our sin and put it on to Jesus. So too, have we ever been perfect? No. But God the Father took Jesus' perfection and gave it to us. Again, this is only for those who are in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 1. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This is the doctrine of the union with Christ. Our union with him. We are in him. And that union with him doesn't just help us to enjoy uh, justification. It's not just the grounds for our justification. It's the grounds for our sanctification. It's not just the grounds for our salvation and our right standing before God. It's our grounds for living out righteousness in this life. Remember Ephesians chapter 2 verse 10. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works that we would walk in, which he created beforehand. We are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus. So this is all of God the Father. That phrase, in Christ, that we see in Romans chapter 6, is used over 170 times by Paul in the New Testament. He loves to talk about our union as believers with Christ. And if you look at this and you say, okay, I didn't die physically with Christ. I wasn't there on the cross, but I was there on the cross. I died, but I didn't die. I'm still alive. How, do, how does all this work? If it makes your brain just kind of uh, short circuit a little bit, don't worry. It does with me as well. And here's the beautiful thing about our gracious God. You don't need to fully understand this to enjoy the benefits of it. God in his grace does not say, I'm going to wait till your brain catches up with my brain and you understand everything and then you can receive the benefits. No, God says, trust me. Trust me. And he's given us what we need to know, but sometimes it makes our brains hurt a little bit. But God just says, I'll let you benefit from the work even if you don't understand it. God himself establishes a union between believers and Jesus such that when Jesus died, 
believers died. So how am I dead in Christ? In what sense am I dead? It's spiritually. God united us spiritually to Jesus. When Jesus died, I died. Which leads to a third question. So we've asked, who has died? Only believers. How did we die? We died spiritually where God the Father united us in the death of Christ. Finally, number three, the third question here. How do we need to die? Or why do we need to die? Why is this such an issue that we need to die? Verse 6, knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Why do we need to die? Because we need to be freed from sin. Because we were enslaved to sin. Romans chapter 1 through chapter 3 verse 20 is Paul's whole argument on our enslavement to sin. It's not that you just need somebody to pay the penalty for your sin. Just think about it. If somebody pays the penalty for your sin and says, I have forgiven you, you may go free, you've been forgiven of all of your sin. But doesn't change your sinful heart, you're just going to walk away, say thank you so much, and then just keep living in your sin. So something needs to die. The old self, the old body of sin needs to die. This is what Titus chapter 3 talks about as the old man. This is James chapter 1 talks about the desires of our heart that are so wicked and so perverted that love sin. You and I are enslaved. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, that enslavement has been broken. But if you are not a believer in Jesus Christ, you're enslaved to sin. And here's what you're enslaved to. You're enslaved to you. You do what you love. You do what you want. And you can't free yourself from that because it's what you want. You are stuck in what Martin Luther would call is the bondage of your will. What you love the most is what you're going to pursue. And what you love the most is yourself and your sin. And so you're stuck in loving yourself and your sin. You can't get out of this unless somebody steps in and frees you from it because what you will always love is yourself and your sin. This is John 3, verse 19. Why did people not love Christ? Because men love the darkness rather than the light. It's all about what you love. It's about your affections. So you need to die in order to be raised with new affections. You don't just need a payment made because if your heart doesn't change then you're going to keep on living in sin. It's interesting to note, sin, the word sin, is never in the plural in Romans chapter 6. It's never sins. There's a distinction in Paul's mind between sin and sins. Sin is the desire for sins. Sins are the actions themselves. So the reason you have sins is because you have sin. We're all born into slavery to sin. And we love that slavery. We love sin. You can't be bought out of this uh, on your own. You have no money to pay for it. You have to die. Somebody has to do the work for you. You have to go so deep inside that you change it from the very heart of who you are. I think we've all experienced that one house project. You know the one that starts. I just want a new kitchen sink faucet. That's all. 35 bucks at Lowe's. That's all I need. Just a little kitchen, new kitchen sink faucet. That's it. You go to Lowe's, you buy the kitchen sink faucet, you bring it back, and you realize that the hole is not big enough. And you go, okay, that's easy. 
I can drill a new hole. I can drill a bigger hole. This will be easy. And you realize as you get the drill bit out and you figure out the dimensions you need, there's a crack running along the granite countertop. And if you start to drill in that, it's going to break the crack open and you're going to need a new countertop. And then you realize, okay, I'm going to get a new countertop. That's really sad that we have to do that for just a kitchen sink faucet, but it's okay. That's all we're going to have to do. So you demo the countertop, you take it off, and, and as you go to measure for a new countertop, you realize that your, your countertop, your cabinets are not level, hence why your, your granite countertop was cracked in the first place. By the way, this is all made up. This is not at all real experience in my life. You, you realize, uh-oh, our, our cabinets are uneven, and so in order to get a new countertop that's not going to crack, we need to level out our cabinets. So we've got to take the cabinets out. And as you take the cabinets out, you realize you're taking out some of the drywall behind it. You realize we've got mold going on. So we start taking out more mold. We start taking out more drywall. We start going all the way down to the studs. You realize there's a pipe that's been leaking the entire time you've been in this house. We've got to get new piping. And you realize that the piping has so damaged a certain section of a stud that now there's dry rot in the stud and it's messed up and the whole side of the house is going to fall over. And you just step back for one moment and you realize, all I wanted was a $35 kitchen sink replacement faucet. That's it. And it turned out to be a $20,000 job. That's it. I'm done, right? That's when you just hate home ownership. Sometimes we attempt to do this spiritually. We look at something that we don't like about ourselves. We see some desire, some affection, some action. We see something and we say, I just want to get rid of that one thing. I just want to get rid of that one issue. I don't like how impatient I am. I don't want to yell at my kids. I want to stop lusting. I want to stop being angry. I don't want a heart that has greed. I want all of these different things to change. And we think if I just take this one thing and replace it with a new thing, I'm good to go. But you're not, because underneath that one thing you want to replace, if you go down all the way, peel back all the layers, you have a heart that is enslaved to sin. You love your sin. So you can try as much as you can to get those layers off, but you will never get to the heart. You need somebody to get in there for you, to do heart surgery for you. We don't need to just replace something, we need to die. We need to be reborn. We need to start over with a new heart, new will, new affections. Jesus died so that you and I can successfully repent. Without Jesus' death and resurrection, you can try all you want, but you will never succeed in repentance. And I just want to stop here and ask you, do you feel this this morning? Are you sitting here and you feel, I have been stuck in sin and I've been trying and trying and trying and I cannot get out of it and I feel enslaved to it. I just want to ask you through the scriptures, is it a possibility that the reason why you cannot successfully repent is because you have not had your heart changed from the inside out by Jesus Christ through his death and his resurrection and his Holy Spirit? Today is the day to say, Christ, please change my heart. Give me a new heart that loves you. Free me from sin. And if you're here this morning and you would say, I know that battle. I know what that feels like. And I know what success and victory over sin feels like because I am dead in Christ and risen to newness of life. 
Today is a day to rejoice and repent. Because you could never gain victory over your sin apart from Jesus' death and his resurrection. So, Paul would say, you cannot go on living in sin if you have died to it. What's true for Christ is true for you. This is built on Romans chapter 5, the doctrine of the imputation of Christ. Our sin has been imputed, credited to his account. He has died. All of our sin is gone. We're dead in Christ. And we've been raised to newness of life. Ponder your newness of life. Ponder, behold, the Christ who died for you. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3. By beholding him, we become to one degree of glory and to the next. We become more like him by beholding him. Now, just one quick side note. Paul will say, dead men don't keep on sinning, so you can't continue to, to live in sin. And if you're here this morning and you hear that and you go, okay, so Paul would say that once you're saved, you've stopped sinning altogether. You become perfect. I just want to say, that's not what Paul's saying. I think I can prove it here. Number one, he's not saying you do not keep on committing sin. Romans chapter 7, Romans 8 will say that. You're going to still fight against sin. He's not saying here you're, you're going to stop committing sin. He's going to say you're going to stop living in it. You're going to stop living in it. It's not going to be your life. It's going to be what you hate, but it's not going to be your life, your affections, what you love. Number two, verse 6, he's going to say that we're no longer enslaved to sin. There's a difference between being freed as a slave to sin and still committing those sins that you so despicably hate, right? You, you hate the enslavement that you used to live in and you don't want it anymore. There's a difference between being enslaved and still committing or struggling with sin. He says in verse 14, sin shall not be master over you because you're not under law but under grace. So it's not your slave master anymore. You will struggle with it, but it's not your slave master. You can say no. Finally, a third reason why I think Paul would say, yes, we're still going to struggle. The, the commands that Paul gives, the, the commands that Paul gives would make no sense if he is thinking, once you're saved, you stop sinning. Command in verse 11, consider yourselves to be dead to sin. If you are dead to sin and you will stop sinning, then you don't need that command. Verse 12, don't let sin reign in your mortal body. If you are dead to sin and you will stop sinning and you're perfect, then you don't need that command. So these commands prove to us that Paul is saying, you're dead to sin, you're still going to struggle, but now you have power that you didn't have before to fight. That's what he's saying. Therefore, this isn't about perfection, but a change in direction. We're not yet perfect. That happens in heaven. But we press on now with power that we never had before. Philippians chapter 3, verse 12 says, not that I've already obtained it, I've never become perfect in this life, I've not become perfect, but I press on so that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus laid hold of me. So, number one, first breathtaking reality is Jesus Christ died. Secondly, he was raised from the dead, never to die again. Third, if you are a believer here this morning, if you're a Christian and you have placed your trust in Jesus Christ alone for salvation, you have died with him. Therefore, to sum that up, your death in Christ secures a victory over slavery to sin so that the body is no longer some helpless accomplice to sin. But rather there's liberty that's brought into the Christian life that enables you to now be an instrument of righteousness. You can actually say no to sin and say yes to God. That leads to breathtaking reality number four. Finally, if 
you have died with Christ. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ and you have died with him, you've died in him, his death is your death. Then breathtaking reality number four is that just as Christ rose from the dead, certainly too you and I will be raised. And technically speaking, we already have been raised. So breathtaking reality, number one, Jesus died. Number two, he rose from the dead never to die again. Number three, believers have died with him. And therefore, number four, believers have been raised with him. We've been raised with him. And this is why I said at the very beginning of our time together, my question is, how does the resurrection inform our day-to-day living now? How does the resurrection inform our sanctification, our fight against sin? Paul will answer that by saying, if we have been crucified with Christ, then we have been raised to newness of life. He'll say in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, you know this passage, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new what? He's a new creation. He's a new creature. Behold, the old things have passed away and new things have come. That's the power of the resurrection. You have died and you have been, been made new, become a new creature. As sure and as certain as Christ rose from the dead, so too our lives will surely and certainly be changed. Verse 5. If we have become united with him in the likeness of his death, certainly we also shall be in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified with him in order that our body of sin might be done away with, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Do you know that? Maybe you know that intellectually. Maybe you know intellectually that Jesus was a true historical figure that lived thousands of years ago, that died a real death on a cross, that rose from the dead. You believe those things. You know those things to be true. But you've never actually given your life over to Christ. Today is the day to do that. Today is the day to turn from your sin because you have a Savior who loves you, who will free you from your enslavement to sin. And if you are a believer in Jesus Christ, you can say in verse 6, I know this to be true. I know this. I don't have to sin anymore. I'm no longer a slave. I've died to sin with Christ and his newness of life is mine as well. How much power do you and I as believers have in ourselves? How much power do we have to say no to sin? Now, as believers, we have the exact same power that raised Christ Jesus from the dead. You and I, as believers, no longer are helpless and hopeless to say no. The same power that raised Christ from the dead resides in you and in me through the Holy Spirit to enable us with power to say no. If you don't believe in the resurrection, then you have no power. If you believe in the resurrection, but you've never committed your life to Christ, you have no power. You have no power. In verse 11, Paul says, even so, after all of these facts have been declared, even so, consider yourselves to be dead to sin, but alive to God in Christ. Consider yourself dead and alive. Very interesting to note, that word consider, that's an imperative, that's a command, do this. That's the first command that Paul has written in the book of Romans. 
The entirety of Romans thus far has been, let me teach you the gospel, let me tell you the gospel, tell you what God's done, tell you what God's done. This is all God, this is all God, this is all God. And this is who you are apart from God. And now if you are in Christ, and God in grace, in merciful grace, God has made you united with Christ, alive in Christ, dead with Christ, and then raised in newness of life. Now you can get to work. Now you can do things. You couldn't have done those before, but if you're saved, now you can do things. So now, first imperative, consider. Think about these things. So, believer, if you are struggling with temptation and sin, first thing that you do, believe that your sin is forgiven in the moment of that temptation. Say, God sent Jesus to die for the sin. I have been forgiven of this sin. I can say no to this sin. Number two, you believe that there's a powerful way of escape. God has given you his Holy Spirit and has given you the power that raised Christ from the dead to you to be able to say no to sin. Number three, you remind yourself you're in Christ. That's Paul's argument in 1 Corinthians 5 through 7. We cannot live involved in immorality because we'd be joining Christ to that immorality. You're in Christ. Therefore, his death is your death and his life is your life. There's a documentary I watched a few years ago on conjoined twins. There was a set of conjoined twins, two girls who were joined at the head and they shared a thalamus, which a thalamus is the sensory signal motor function cerebral cortex in in your brain. So it helps you feel things and respond to things. And if one of the sisters tasted ketchup on her tongue, the other sister that did not have ketchup in her mouth would taste ketchup because they shared the same thalamus. They shared, ultimately, uh, the same brain nervous response system. Brothers and sisters, that's you and that's me. If you have been crucified with Christ and you're alive with him, you share his affections. So what does Jesus love to do? We talked about it on Friday. He loves to obey his heavenly father. John chapter 4. It is my food to do the will of my father. I love obedience. I love glorifying God. That's what Jesus loves. And if you're in Christ now, you too love that. What does Jesus hate? What made Jesus stagger in the garden of Gethsemane? It was the prospect of becoming the sin bearer, bearing the curse. Every time Jesus had ever said yes to obedience, it's always brought blessing. And in the garden, he knows that if I say yes to obedience, it's going to bring a curse. It's the curse of sin that makes Jesus stagger. He hates sin. Therefore, if you're in Jesus Christ, you hate sin too. You hate sin too. Spurgeon says it this way. For the Christian to choose to sin is the spiritual equivalent of digging up a corpse for fellowship. Likewise, to choose to disobey is the spiritual equivalent of starving yourself. You can now say, I love what Christ loves and I hate what Christ hates. Martin Lloyd-Jones gave a great example of this reality. One time he was talking about there's two different fields that are fenced in with a big road in the middle. And you're on one side, and the devil's there with you, and he's just telling you what to do, and you can't escape, you can't get out, because you're fenced into that field. And then God, in his kindness, plucks you out of that field and puts you over to the other field. And they're both fenced in, there's a road in between, it's completely divided, and so now the devil tells you to do something, and you say, I don't have to listen to you. I don't have to do what you're saying, I'm no longer in your field. 
And he goes on to say, so the devil will start shouting at you. Because he doesn't own you, because sin is no longer your master, and you've been plucked out of that field and put somewhere else, he's going to start shouting at you right up at the edge of that fence and say, you need to do this. But number one, you can say, no, I don't. I don't have to do that anymore. And number two, you can run as far away from that fence as you want and run to Jesus, run to Christ. Paul will say this elsewhere in Ephesians chapter 5, verse 14. He says, awake, O sleeper, arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. Live as those who have been raised from the dead. You've been risen with Christ. You've been raised with him. Walk in the light and in newness of life. So his resurrection gives us power today to fight sin. But it also gives us future power knowing that we will be raised with him on the last day to be in paradise with him forever. Forever. Just work backwards on this. If you know without a shadow of a doubt, you're not afraid of death because you know death is gain. If you know that when you die, you will be with Christ for all of eternity in paradise, in heaven, and you will never have a worry whatsoever of being taken out of his hands then you know today you have to be forgiven of your sins in order to have that confidence and that assurance. If you are confident and assured of the reality that you do not fear death, but you know that death is gain because your sins have been forgiven and you will be with Christ forevermore, then you can live today with that assurance knowing my sins aren't hung over my head and held over there by someone who is a judge who's going to punish me, but they've been taken away. And now I can live free, forgiven. We are secured in our resurrection. Therefore, we know we're not guilty. You cannot be secured about the end of your life if you're not secure about forgiveness of sins. Think about how many people die on their deathbed and they're dying and they're worried because they're going through the catalog of sins in their mind and they know that they're about to stand before a holy God and they're terrified. Why are believers not afraid on their deathbed? Because we have nothing to fear. We have no condemnation if we are in Christ. And therefore, what is sin to us? It's only what Jesus has taken away and removed. The penalty is gone. The punishment has been paid. It's over. Therefore, I get to stand before my God, not as a judge anymore, but as a heavenly father who loves me and gave a son for me. We are secured in our resurrection and therefore we're not guilty. Therefore, we're freed from the allurement of sin, it begins to weaken because we know we've been freed, freed from this. Just mark it down in your mind. You cannot fight sin successfully until your sins are forgiven. The only sin that can triumph over, the only sin that you and I can triumph over in practice is sin that Christ has died for and has been raised for. And if he had not died for our condemnation, to take away our condemnation then we could not make any progress in our sanctification. I don't get holy in order to get justified. I get justified so that I can now fight the battle of holiness. So here's Paul's argument. Let's zip all of these four breathtaking realities together. Christ died for your sins. And he rose from the dead for your sins. Romans chapter 5 verses 8 through 9. God demonstrates his own love toward us so that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Now, much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. 
So number two, when Christ died and rose, you died and rose in him if you're a believer in Jesus Christ. If you love him, if you trust him, if he's precious to you, this is what's happened to you. When God looked at Jesus' suffering on the cross and saw him raised from the dead, he saw all of his people in that death. Your execution is finished. Your sins have been paid for. Number three, God then unites us to Christ by faith so that what was accomplished on the cross is applied to us by the Spirit. Christ died, we receive all the benefits. And so my question to you this morning is, have you looked upon Christ as greater than anything that this world has to offer? Do you love him more than anything in this world? Is he your greatest treasure? Is he your greatest delight? Is he your greatest satisfaction? 1 Peter chapter 2 says, To those who believe, he is precious. It's not just about saying, I agree with those facts. It's about saying, I love those facts. We talked about this on Friday. The demons agree with those facts. They believe that Jesus died on the cross. They believe that he rose from the dead. Demons believe that he is the only way to be saved. They hate that. They believe those things to be true. They know that they're true. And they hate that. What's the difference between a demon and a believer? Believers know those things to be true. They believe that they're true. And they love that. Because Jesus is their only hope. Do you love Christ? If you do not love Jesus Christ, then none of these realities are true for you. But they can be today. Friends, I would plead with you, don't leave. Don't leave here with sin hanging over your head, with an enslavement to sin in your soul. Don't leave until you know that those chains have been broken, that you're forgiven, that you're free. And that Christ is your greatest treasure. And if you would say, I don't get what's so great about Jesus. I will, I will let my wife and my kids go to my in-laws today and do Easter at their house, and I will stay with you the entire day to tell you about how amazing Jesus is. I'll be with you the rest of the day. We can go, we can go to Chipotle and hang there for as long as we want. We can have lunch there and dinner there. We can get a snack to go from there. I will, I, will, I will stay with you because I want you to know, if you would say, I don't get what's so amazing about Jesus, I would love to tell you what's amazing about him. His love for you is something that you couldn't possibly begin to imagine. If you are a believer in Jesus Christ, then you are united with Christ. You're justified. And then Paul would say, now you're alive in him and you're empowered to say no to sin. That's why he gives us the command, the first command in Romans in verse 11. Now you can consider you, your life as dead in Christ and raised to newness of life. Now you have a volition and a will that can follow him and can love him. So finally, the rest of these verses that we don't have time to cover, verses 12 through 14, really the rest of the book, Paul will say, now when sin sends desires in your heart to try to fight against God, now you can say no. Now you can say yes to God because he's your master, not sin. You can now choose to prefer one thing over another. If we have died with Christ, then we're guaranteed that we will be raised in the end because the guilt of our sin is removed and we are already raised spiritually now as new creations in Christ. Four breathtaking realities. These four realities cut at the root of bondage to everything in this life. Have you been set free? Have you been made new? And do you love and trust the risen Christ? My favorite quote when it comes to Good Friday and Easter 
We read it every Easter sermon. The corpse of Jesus just lay there in the silence of that cave. By all appearances, it had been tested and tried and found wanting. If you had been there to pull open his bruised eyelids, matted together with mottled blood, you would have looked into blank holes. If you had lifted his arm, you would have felt no resistance. You would have only heard the thud as it hit the table when you let it go. And you might have walked away from that morbid scene muttering to yourself, truly, the wages of sin is death. But, somewhere before dawn on a Sunday morning, a spike-torn hand twitched. A blood-crusted eyelid opened. The breath of God came blowing into that cave and a new creation flashed into reality. God was not simply delivering Jesus and with him all of us from death. He was also vindicating Jesus and with him all of us as well. By resurrecting Jesus from the dead, God was reaffirming what he had said over the Jordan waters. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. He was declaring Jesus to be the son of God in power. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is alive. He's alive. And because his heart now beats, he lives forever to make intercession for you and for me. He's alive. And because his heart beats, death is dead. And we have no more fear of death whatsoever. Because his heart beats, sin's power has been shattered. And because his heart beats, now my heart beats with a new love for him, with an affection for him, and now an ability to live for him. Do you believe this morning that his heart beats? If you do, then we can say amen and amen. Christ is risen indeed.